Well, I cannot tell you how excited I am to begin this series today and how intimidated I am to begin it. I'm excited because I felt a real compulsion from the Lord to address the issue of family and to do it in a very comprehensive and thorough way, in a biblical way. I'm compelled to do that because God's truth speaks so clearly as to his desire for us and our families and our relationships. I'm compelled to do it because I love you. I love my church. And it would be so easy to ignore the hard things in Scripture in order not to ruffle any feathers. But I love you too much not to bring these things out. And, and the third reason that I feel compelled to do this is because, well, quite frankly, if you take a look at the world in which we live, um, it's kind of messed up. And the whole concept of family has lost its meaning. It's being constantly redefined so that it has no meaning at all. And when you take a look at the statistics, and we will over the course of the next few weeks, look at some statistics that are absolutely heartbreaking as to what's taking place in our culture, it absolutely breaks your heart. And so with those three things in mind, I really felt compelled to do this. But on the other hand, I'm a little scared to do it. And here's the reason, because sometimes when God's truth is presented in in a clear way, uh, it becomes offensive for some. And I want to let you know, it's never my intent to stand up here and offend anyone. And believe me, I'm the last person to stand up here and condemn anyone. But I love you too much not to say it. Have you ever loved someone so much that you stepped into their lives and said, Hey, listen, this isn't right. This needs to change. And sometimes people receive that very well, and sometimes people don't. And I guess it's the latter that is my concern. So please understand, it is never, it is never, ever, ever my intent to stand here and to be condemning or to be judgmental or to slam you in any way. In fact, I want to stick as closely to our mission statement as a church as I possibly can. And our mission statement is very brief and very clear. It says, Grace Fellowship exists to glorify God by bringing people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. Say that with me. Grace Fellowship exists to glorify God by bringing people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen, the purpose of this sermon series is the same as the purpose for our church. What I want more than anyone else is to present God's truth in a way with the Holy Spirit operating in your hearts and lives to bring people to know Jesus as Savior, but then to give them a faith that is a growing faith, a faith that is a transforming faith, a faith that makes a difference in their lives. There are a lot of churches, a lot of churches around that will just say, hey, listen, just follow this set of rules. I'm not here to tell you that. What I'm here to tell you is there's a God who wants to give you a new heart and a new mind and wants to begin an inside-out transformation of your life because I believe this. True transformation comes 
from true conversion. True change comes from a heart and a mind that have been renewed in Christ Jesus. Change never comes from rules. Never comes from rules. You got kids have to put them in a uniform to go to, go to school. Nothing wrong with that uniform, khakis, blue pants, collared shirt. Everything's cool, right? Not to those kids. You see, the rules doesn't change their heart. The rules don't change what they want to wear. The rules just make them fit into that mold. And what God's word wants to do is the Holy Spirit empowers you is to change your heart and change your mind and to change your will so that your wants are now different. And so I want to encourage you to hear what God has to say to you over the course of these next few weeks, to hear it and then to to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in bringing about the change that God wants to bring into your life. Now, I'd like to begin in John chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them to John chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 3 through 11. John chapter 8, 3 through 11. And when I read this, you may say, well, that sounds kind of an odd place to, to start this series, but uh, it, hopefully it'll make sense to you coming up. John chapter 8, and we're going to begin reading with verse 3. Hear now the word of the Lord. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, in the law of Moses... The law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Now, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. Most of you know this story, at least in passing. Stoning was not really common during that time. It was permissible by the law of Moses, but it was not really common. And we see that the whole point in the, these religious leaders bringing this woman caught in adultery to Jesus, we see that the whole point was, was not to execute justice on her for her sin, but it was a trap. Now, there are a few things that indicate it was a trap. One of the things that would first indicate it was a trap was this. The woman was caught in adultery. Where was the guy? If they had really been concerned about justice, would they not have brought them both? The woman was an expendable prop. She was the bait in the trap. And what they were trying to get Jesus to do was one of two things. Either to say, let her go, and then they would say, well, he doesn't believe in God's word. Or to say, go ahead and stone her, 
and then he would have no compassion. They were trying to get Jesus caught in a trap, but, but Jesus wasn't going to be caught so easily. As a matter of fact, he does three things. First of all, he points out to all of them that none of them were sinless. Whoever, whoever one of you out here who has no sin, you be the one to throw the first stone. And when they recognized that, they said, I can't throw a stone. I haven't lived a sinless life. You see, here's the deal. They were, they were more worked up about her sin than they were about their own. They were more intent on condemning her for her sin than they were in dealing with their own sin. The next thing he does is he states that he doesn't condemn her. Now, we don't want to stop there because the third thing is also vitally important. Not only does he state that he doesn't condemn her, he tells her to go from that place and to change her life. To leave her life of sin. Go and sin no more. So if we summarize it, we could say that Jesus did not condemn the woman caught in adultery, nor did he condone her sin. Instead, he loved her enough to call her to repentance. He loved her enough not to leave her where she was. He not only swooped in with grace to speak into her life, He pointed her to what life could be. That is really what we want to capture during the course of these next few weeks. We want to swoop into people's lives with grace and truth and point them to what could be. It doesn't have to be like it is. Life can change. In John's Gospel, the first chapter, it is said of Jesus that he came from the Father full of grace and truth, and he did, and he never compromised either. Jesus always held high grace, but he never brought down truth. He always held high truth, but he never brought down grace. He was full of grace and truth, and he is our model. We are to be full of grace and truth as we bring God's word and God's witness to the world. This is confirmed in Scripture. Paul writes, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned as with salt. Peter confirms this as well. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reasons for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. The image that comes to my mind immediately is the opposite of this. When uh, Nancy and I were in college, uh, at at the University of North Carolina, there's an area called the pit. It has two steps down. It's kind of a large area. It's where students gather. They wouldn't on a day like today. But when the sun's out and, and, uh, you know, it's decent weather, students just kind of gather around there to talk, to chat, to do whatever they're going to do. But people can go and get a permit to speak in the pit. And they, there was a group that always showed up two or three times a year, pit preachers, they were called, and they were the pits, literally. Um, their whole point was to, I mean, you could smell the hell fire and brimstone on their breath. 
They were there to condemn everyone who came by to point out to them how awful, wicked they were, that they were all going to hell, that they were all fornicators, that they were all drug users, that they were all this and all that. And, I mean, they laid it on thick. And, of course, there was a lot of jeering going back and forth, and it, it wasn't a pleasant sight. It, was, it, it would have been funny if these people weren't representing Jesus, who came full of grace and truth, who said when we, when we share with others the reason, we hope, the hope, reason for the hope that we have, we do it with gentleness and respect. You couldn't find it in them. And there's no telling how many people's opportunity to receive something, to hear the message was dampened because of the viciousness with which these people tried to share Jesus Christ. And so when we bring the truth of God into the room, we must bring the grace of God into the room. And that's my hope and my heart as we move into this. You see, we live in a fallen world. You may not have noticed that. We live in a world that's messed up. And that fallenness, it it affects our relationships. It affects our families. We see this from the very outset. Adam and Eve kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Then we find Cain and Abel. Cain invites his brother out in the field, and because he's jealous of him, what does Cain do? He kills him. Look how far we fell. And that fallenness in our nature continues. It's no wonder families are so messed up. It's no wonder relationships are so much, so messed up. We struggle to find God's ideal. God's ideal is his perfect will for our lives. That's God's ideal. God's ideal is his perfect will for our lives. And the sad fact is that none of us can say that we are continually at the center of God's will, can we? That's what Jesus pointed out to those gathered around with the stones. None of us are there. None of us can say that we dwell in the center of God's will. We're we're scattered about. Some of us are closer than others. Some days we're closer than others. But our aim should be to continually move toward the center, the heart of God's will. That should be our aim, to steady and continuous movement toward the center of the will of God, towards ideal. That should be our aim. That should be our momentum. That should be our direction. And again, in this life, we will never attain that perfectly. The Apostle Paul put it it very clearly. He said in Philippians 3, Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. What's he saying? He says, my movement, my steady, continuous movement should be towards the center of the will of God, should be towards God's ideal for my life. That should be my direction in life. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise hands this morning, but if you were to to consider yourself and where you are right now, where are you in relationship to the will of God for your life? Where are you in relationship to God's ideal? 
And what direction are you moving? Are you moving toward the center of God's will? Are you just kind of floating out there somewhere? Or do you find yourself drifting back away from God's will? Our direction as believers should be that continual, steady, even though some days it's three steps forward, two steps back, that continual, steady movement towards God's ideal, God's will for our lives. And so we begin this series with two simple acknowledgments. And the first is this. None of us is worthy to cast stones at another. You will not come in here on a Sunday morning and find a pile of rocks and an invitation to start throwing them at people. There's not one of you in here worthy to pick up a stone and throw it at another. That's where we begin. We've got to acknowledge that. We're not here to condemn people. We're not here to pound people into the ground. God's the judge. We're not the judge. But the second acknowledgement is just as important. All of us are called to live lives shaped by the perfect will of God. In other words, we're not saying that how you live isn't important. We're not saying that what you do isn't important. We're not saying that your lifestyle isn't important. It is. It's just that you and I don't get to cast stones at each other. Here is the opportunity for God's Word and God's Spirit to come together to meet you in your life, to bring conviction to your heart so that you say, not they're making me change, but I've got to change. I cannot stay where I am. I am not satisfied. I am not content to be here because God has something better. God has something purer. God has something higher. God has something richer, and it's mine. And I'm moving toward it. I'm heading that direction. And nothing's going to deter me. Nothing's going to push me off track. Nothing's going to delay me. My intent with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my being is to be in the will of God for my life, to be in God's ideal, and nothing's going to keep me away from it. That's got to be your aim. You've got to, as Paul is writing here about pressing on, he says, listen, I'm casting off everything. Anything that hinders me, anything that slows me down, anything that could trip me up, I'm throwing it off. I remember, I, I, you can look at me and tell I am not like a, a guy that does 5Ks 10 or 12 times a year. I've just not. I've done one 5K, and that was about 4K too much. If they... Amen, if they'd had donuts on the other end, I might have done it. But the Krispy Kreme 5K, I'm, I'm, I'm there. And I'll get through it somehow. I, but I did it once. And you know what I didn't do when I ran that 5K? I didn't carry a backpack. I didn't wear jeans. I didn't wear my dress shoes. I didn't wear a jacket. I was, as, I was as lightweight and streamlined as I, could, as, as I could possibly get. I had on running shoes, short socks. I didn't even want any drag on those. 
I had on some lightweight nylon shorts and this little flimsy little shirt and the, and the number plastered across, and that was it. I mean, I didn't want a headband. I didn't want anything to slow me down. And that's what Paul's saying. If you're going to run the race, folks, there's some stuff you need to look around and say, you know, I need to throw some things overboard. There's some things that I need to move out of my life if I'm going to be in the center of God's will. Now, I need you to ask yourself this question right now because, to be honest, the rest of these few weeks isn't really going to matter until you're willing to honestly answer this question. Do I want to be in the center of God's will or not? Think about it. Do I want to be in the center of God's will or am I content to stay where I am? Once you can answer that question, I think you're ready to hear what God has to say to you. Well, with it being said that we want to be in the center of God's will, how do do we know that perfect will? How can we know the perfect will of God and, and the good news is it's a simple answer, and that answer is that God has revealed his will to us in his word. You want to know what God's will for your life is? Don't go see Madame Lorraine down at the Palm Place. You want to know the center of God's will, go to his word and say, God, reveal it to me. Because i got to tell you, as you open these pages and you begin to read, God will say, okay, there it is. Up, oh, there it is. Hey, hey, there it is. And, and once you see it, guess what? Then you have to make that decision all again, all over again. Am I content to stay where I am? Or do I want to be in the will of God? What do I have to do to get from where I am to where God wants me to be? Now, there's a lot of interest in, in God's Word, the Bible right now. Uh, how many of you saw any of the Bible series that was on, it was on the History Channel, I think it was on A&E or something Okay, a lot of you saw that. Well, you were in good company because on the first night that it ran on the History Channel, there were 13.1 million people that watched it. And over the course of that series, over 100 million people saw at least a portion of the Bible series. That's a lot of people with a lot of interest in the Bible. It surprised a lot of folks. Well, this year... I don't know if the movie had anything to do with it or not or that miniseries had anything to do with it or not, but the American Bible Society asked the Barna Group to do a series of surveys for them to gauge interest in the Bible in the United States. And and here are some of the results. According to this Barna Group survey, 88% of Americans say they own at least one Bible. Wow. That means... Almost 90% of the homes in the United States have a Bible, at least one Bible. That's pretty impressive. The numbers go on. 80% stated a belief that the Bible is sacred. That is, they believe at least in some way that this is God's word. Now listen to this. 90% of the homes nearly have Bibles. 80% of Americans in this survey, said that they believe this is, at least to some extent, God's Word. 61% said that they wish they read the Bible more. 61% of Americans said they wish they read the Bible more. 77% believe that the morals of Americans are in decline. That's a pretty big number. That America is morally in decline. 
and 32% contribute this decline to a lack of Bible reading. A third of Americans say that the reason we are where we are morally in our country is because we don't read the Bible enough. Well, interest in the Bible is pretty high. Respect for the Bible is, is pretty high. But there's a huge difference between respecting the Bible and having the Bible shape your life. There's a huge difference between reading the Bible and having the Bible change you. What we're going to discover in this series is that there is an incredible, awful disconnect between what people say they believe and how people live. What they say they believe about the Bible, about God's will, and how they live on a day-to-day basis and what they do in their relationships. Somehow there's a short circuit in the wiring. Something that keeps the power from flowing from God's word to our relationships. I have um, I've taken up piddling in my old age. I went out to my little workshop out back. I call it my barn. I went out to the barn. And I've been trying to put things in order out there to get everything organized. I don't know. Maybe some of you piddle. I don't know. It's nice to have a place to piddle. Gosh, that sounds weird. Um, by piddling, I do mean tinkering around. Okay. But one of the, one of the uh, tasks that I'd had in my barn for a long, long time was two power cords. Uh, for the longest time, I had a set of uh, hedge trimmers that was uh, electric. They were operated, you had to, had to plug them in. And if you've ever tried to trim hedges with a power cord trailing behind you, you discover that it's not too long before the thing stops working. And you're wondering, what's happened to this thing? Until you, until you start tracing the cord back and you go, uh-oh, there it is. I cut into the power cord. And it's amazing that when one of those wires is cut, there's no juice that gets to the machine on the other end. And I think that's a lot of times what happens in our Bible reading. We, we, we may read the Bible. We may listen to a, a preacher on television or on uh, our iPod. Or we may, we may come to church and go to, go to Bible study and worship and grace group. And we may hear God's word. But somewhere along that cord between God's word and our life, the power gets disconnected. And I don't exactly know how to fix that. I mean, electrical tape and wire cutters isn't going to do it. What it's going to take is a commitment to not only hear what God says, but to do it. James says, don't be hearers of the word only, deceiving yourselves. Be doers. In other words, if you think... You've done all there is to do with God's Word simply by reading it. You've only gotten halfway there. You plugged in a wire that's not connected on the other end. Don't just be hearers, be doers also. 
summarize it like this. Respect for the Bible does not automatically translate it translate into it shaping our decisions. Just because I own a Bible, respect it, doesn't mean that it's going to change my life. And so let's ponder a little bit. Does the truth of God's word shape your daily decision making? Does the truth of God's word shape how you respond to one another in your families? Does the truth of God's word govern your relationships? Does it define for you things like family and love? You know, I got to admit, some people get their concept of love from what they see at the movies. And some people get their idea of family from what they see on sitcoms during weeknights. And if we're getting our idea of love from the movies and family from sitcoms, then it is no wonder that 77% of Americans think we're in moral decline because that is not fit for man or beast. That's not a good place to be. If our relationships are not anchored in the unchanging truth of God's word, then you and I will be adrift in dangerous seas. And my hope and prayer is that somehow, beginning today and over the course of the next few weeks, that you will begin to hear what God has to say about relationships and that you'll do more than hear it. You'll ask yourself, where am I, God, in relationship to your will? And what do I need to do to get there? Because I'm not content to stay here. Now, I'm going to tell you up front, if you are parents or grandparents, you go, can I bring my kids to this? If we get to a point where I feel like anything is going to be uh, too graphic in nature, and it won't get but so graphic because I'm not going to do that, but if, I, if we're getting to the point because we're going to talk, we're going to talk honestly about sexuality. We're going to talk honest about relationships and marriage and relationships outside of marriage and before marriage. We're going we're gonna to talk honestly about those things because, folks, it, if your kids and grandkids don't get it here, they're going to get it there. When we said don't sac- last week, don't sacrifice your children on the altar of the world, i got to tell you right now, you would be absolutely stunned at what your little six, seven, and eight-year-old fresh-faced kids already know. And you're trying to protect them. You're trying to guard them. Oh, I don't want them to know about this until they're 15, 16 years old. By then, listen, the ship has already sailed. And so now's the time. If we're going to talk about it, here's the place. Let's let God be honest with us. And then we be honest with ourselves. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, I thank you for the truth and power of your word for its ability to meet us where we are and to move us to where you want us to be. And now, Lord, we give give ourselves to you and we make a strong commitment to you, Lord, that we will hear what you say and we will move our lives to the center of your will. And with your 
strength, with your power, we will cooperate with you in staying there. Lord God, thank you that in Christ Jesus we're not condemned, that we have forgiveness, that we have grace. But Lord, we pray that we will not cheapen grace by lives that don't give a thought to what you would have us to do and to be. Change us and transform us. Lord, if there's anyone here today who needs to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ, Father, I pray that you would call them to yourself. There are those here, Lord, who need a church home, and you're calling them here. Then, Lord, bring them on. And Father, if there are some people who need to throw off some things in order to run to the center of your will, and Lord, I pray today would be the day of casting it off and running to you. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.